It's with uh, much excitement, and I can see some of you think this uh, segment that I'm about to introduce this morning is uh, long overdue, as you've pushed my back all the way to the wall, and uh, there's a reason for it. I'm going to introduce a new segment that I, I hope uh, this will be the one and only week I have to do, but I've got a feeling it won't be. And that's going to be um, a feature that I'm going to entitle Chuck's Weekly Retractions from the pri Previous Week. <laughs> so if you'll just bear with me for a moment. If you weren't here last week, this will make no sense to you at all. If you were, uh, you'll be waiting because um, you're probably on this list. Anyway, these are the top five weekly retractions. I'm sure there are several more. But the, uh, the fifth one, and I'll start with those who are least insulted and work my way up to those who are most insulted. Uh, number five, no, Bob Shank never made me plug in appliances for him when I worked for him. Uh, retraction number four, uh, yes, your opinions are important uh, if they line up with the word of God. Retraction number three, uh, yes, uh, you may think any way you'd like, even if you are wrong. <laughs> Let's see, uh, retraction number two, we're getting into the good ones now. Number two is I will never stick my tongue out and go at you ever again. <laughs> And retraction number one, and those who were most insulted last week were, I did not mean to imply that because USC did not rate with Harvard School of Business or the Stanford Medical School that it was not a fine academic institution. <laughs> and its graduates should be proud. So let's hear it for Tommy Trojan this morning. Okay, there we go. That's the top five from last week. And you can jot yours down for this week and give me a call next week sometime. We have been talking about integrity. This is our third meeting in a short series that finds us examining this subject. And uh, it's not just a subject, but I think it's more of a, a character trait that we call integrity. Over the past two meetings, we've discovered that men and women that can lay claim to integrity, according to the Bible, demonstrate certain qualities in his or her life. And uh, basically, we came up with four of them that I saw through the lives of uh, David and, and uh, Daniel, and we saw it in the life of Job. And those qualities were, number one, as there's four of them that were demonstrated, a man or woman of integrity demonstrates it by uh, being obedient to the Word of God. Not just having a head knowledge of what God has to say, but having a head knowledge that leads to um, life change. It's the man or woman who knows what God has to say, and rather than say, I know what he has to say, they're doers of the word and not just hearers only. They, have, they demonstrate an obedience to the word of God. According to the Bible, a man or woman of integrity also has a reliance upon God that does not waver when things get rough in their life. We saw it demonstrated in every one of the cases that I've already mentioned, and that is in the life of Daniel and David and also Job, that the man or woman of integrity demonstrates a trust trust in God that doesn't waver when things get pretty tough out there. And uh, we see that's true. Also, we saw that uh, the man or woman of integrity has a desire to turn from evil. They're not, they're not, they're not schemers, or they don't plot to do what is wrong, uh, but they actually turn away from evil. They're not pretenders or hypocrites, but what you see is what you get. It was like when Jesus saw Nathaniel, and he said, you know, in him there is no guile, there's no hypocrisy. What you see is what you get. And that is a man or woman of integrity, according to what God has to say about it. We also saw that a man or woman of integrity has a repentant spirit, where they're confronted with the truth of the word of God, and they look at it and how they're living. They say, you know, God is right, and I am wrong, and I recognize it, I confess it. But see, the problem that we have is that many people confess that, that um, you know, they agree with God. What they're doing in a certain area is wrong. I agree with you, God, this is wrong. I confess, I repent, forgive me for it. And then they continue to go along in it. 
See, the problem is confession and repentance, if you agree with God that what God is saying is right, it always requires that you turn from the direction that you're going and you go back in the direction that God wants you to go back in, whether it means making it right, whether it means to change the things that you're doing, whether you're saying, I agree with you, Lord, this isn't what I should be doing, what should I be doing is the next question, I've got to stop this direction, I've got to go back this way, and I've got to make it right, and then I've got to proceed in that direction. There is no repentance, there is no forgiveness, there is nothing uh, of the sort if there's not a demonstration that there's been life change that goes along with it. The easiest thing in the world to do is say, God, forgive me, I'm sorry, I don't mean it, I need to change, blah, 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 blah. And we all know it in our relationships with one another. The easiest thing to do is blow smoke at each other and say, I'm sorry for what I'm doing, and then there's no demonstrable change in our life patterns. And you say, how can you be sorry if there's no change? And you know what? There isn't a repentance if there's no change. So we see that, and uh, as you see in the life of David, for example, an illustration that we use was that David wasn't perfect, nor was he sinless, but according to the Bible's definition, he was a man of integrity. We see that in Psalm 28, we see it in Psalm 26, we also see it in 1 Kings chapter 9. If I were to ask you, or to ask a person in the street, and here's where our difficulty runs in, if I were to ask a person in the street, or you were to ask them this question, could a man or a woman who has committed adultery and murder be considered a person of integrity? I think without question, if you ask that same question to someone in the street, you'd get a resounding no way. See, this is our problem in defining what we believe is right or wrong. God says David has integrity. We would say there's no way. How can a person that committed adultery and murder ever have integrity? That's why the world has such a problem with Christians who have become visible uh, with the sin that they've committed in their life that they have confessed or they've repented from and the world still looks at them and says there can't be integrity there even though they've confessed it, even though they've repented, even though they've changed from it and moved in a different direction, uh, they can't have integrity because they've done it once. See, the good news for all of us is it doesn't matter what you did once or you're continuing to do today. God is saying that today is, a, is the first day of the rest of your life. If you acknowledge your sin and confess it and repent from it, then you too could be a person of integrity. We try, try to change the definitions. We drove in this morning. Um, we were in Palm Springs for the last few days, and we drove up this morning. And my son was in the car, and, and, and it was windy in the desert. It was nice. It was beautiful in the desert. It was really nice in the desert, actually. It was real sunny and it was warm. But we drove in this morning, and we were coming through um, uh, Palm Springs, and, and it was, oh, the wind started to blow out on 10. It was probably blowing 60 miles an hour, and the car is shaking, and it's blowing all over the place. And so we, we drove past, um, you know, the, the wind generators, and, and Ryan, my son, goes, well, Dad, no wonder it's so windy. Look at all those fans are on. <laughs> and... Uh, You know, and I never quite looked at it that way. <laughs> and although it is a good question when you think about it, I mean, are they wind generators because they generate wind? I don't understand. It's just real confusing. So I just said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Let's go shut them off and we won't have the problem. And I think a lot of us, uh, we, we look at the Bible in the same way. You know, we, we look into what we think that we see and perceive and think that it's right and even though it's completely the opposite. And God's ways are always opposite of our ways. That's why we've got to be tuned into what he has to say. So that's the problem with, with this whole subject of integrity. I think it should be the goal of each one of us um, to be commended someday for being a man or a woman of integrity. I think it would be uh, a great commendation to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, but also to hear the words, well done, you, you man or woman of integrity. See, 
But the problem is, we will never, ever experience the commendation. We've got some friends from Atlanta this morning. I love it because I was thinking about it every time Charles Stanley's on radio, and they always say, now listen to me. Now listen to me. Um, now, now listen to me on this because this is going to be the, the crux of what we talk about this morning. You and I will never be able to experience the commendation for integrity until we go through the condemnation that precedes the commendation. See, we don't know the depth or the level of our commitment until that commitment is put under fire. Until we experience hostility for the convictions that we say we believe, until it's put to the test, you and I don't really know the depth of our convictions. We say it, we think we believe it, you know, that's the way it is, but man, I mean, when it's gonna cost you something, when it's gonna cost you some money, or it's going to cost you a relationship, or it's going to cost you something, you're going to find out whether you really believe what you say you believe. That's what we're going to look at this morning. You will never experience commendation until you go through condemnation to see the depth of your convictions. Deuteronomy 8 says that God tests our heart so that we may know what's in our heart. God knows what's in our heart. But the problem is we don't. We say we believe this. We say that we will put up with it. We say we will experience any price that the world has to offer, but I will never deny you, Lord, as Peter said. And when the heat is on, up, our convictions change. That's what we're, gonna, that's what we're here to talk about this morning. Um, there were three things that we saw about uh, integrity, uh, three decisions that were always available to us. Decision number one was that we had the opportunity to compromise. You believe something, you're challenged in that area, you have the option available to you to compromise. Do you really believe it or don't you believe it? And for many to compromise, they say, well, I'm not real sure how, how I stand in that area. I'll go along with it, and then I'll try to figure out whether I believe that or not. And then if I feel guilty about it, it's probably unrealistic anyway, so uh, we'll develop some convictions later. The sec second option that was available to us was that of commitment. I don't care what happens to me, I don't care what they throw against me, but I'm going to stand for what I believe is right, I know it's right, I'm going to stand behind it, and I don't care what the cost, I don't care what the price, I'm willing to pay it. But we also saw there was a third option that was available, according to Daniel, the first chapter, and that was we don't always have to be a martyr for what we believe. Many times we can become creative, still accomplish the, objection, the objectives of the organization, while at the same time not compromising our convictions according to the Word of God. We don't always have to take a, you can do whatever you want to me approach. We can, we can to pray to God that he'll, he'll soften the heart and grant you compassion before that person in authority over your life, that you can become creative, still accomplish their objectives while not compromising your convictions along the way. So there are three choices that are available to us, and any one of them, according to the Word of God, is, a, is an option, but there's only two, and that's commitment and creativity that God says that he upholds. That's where we're at. That's what we're looking at. So this morning, what do you do... We saw creativity over compromise. The problem is, what do you do when creativity won't work? I thought it was interesting last week. I'll throw out before we start going in, in a new direction. And that was uh, a gal came up to me uh, last week and said, you know what's amazing to me is that the, the world seems to appreciate a person <laughs> of conviction because many times, those who are around you are non-Christians don't know what you believe. 
And so if you approach them and say, you know what, um, I've, got, I've got a problem in this area, I understand what you're trying to accomplish, uh, I don't feel good about the means of doing it, but I'd like to suggest doing this, many times they'll say, you know, I didn't know that that was a problem for you. That's fine, as long as we can reach the goal, that's okay with me. And they appreciate conviction, and it seems to be other Christians, as we've got convictions about something, that say to you, listen up, you don't need to be so legalistic about it. You know, and they give us a harder time about our convictions. James 4.17 says, To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. According to the Word of God, there's tremendous flexibility about our consciousness toward God, whether something is right or wrong, and a non-Christian may respect your convictions and say, Oh, I didn't know that there was a problem in your life. Or other Christians say, Well, you know what? I don't see anything wrong with that. What's your problem? Loosen up. Don't be so legalistic. And it's not always so cut and dry. So we've got to be careful what we encourage one another as far as what our convictions are, but to uphold each other and to encourage each other to make sure that we are becoming more like Christ in our attitudes and our actions. Another gentleman came up to me and said, you know what, here's a problem that I had. Um, worked in a, in a uh, convenience store and didn't feel good about uh, selling alcohol, didn't feel good about selling pornographic magazines. He goes, so I was the manager, and I just didn't feel good about it, so I had somebody who worked for me. I said, you know what? I don't feel good about doing this. You handle this. I don't even want to be part of it. Well, that was creativity. It was one way to approach his convictions. But as he went along with it a little further, he began to realize that that wasn't good enough. He didn't feel good about having somebody else do something that he didn't feel about doing himself. So he said, you know what? I just decided to step out in faith to quit my job and just to allow God to uphold my convictions. You know what happened? See, we would like to write it this way. God gave him a better job, making more money, better hours, and his convictions were never challenged. That's how we'd write the story. You know what he said? He goes, well, I got a job that's, well, the hours are worse. I don't make as much money. He goes, but the amazing thing is, I've got a piece of my life that I didn't have before. See, there is no better position to be in for the man or woman of God than to be within the will of God according to, the, according to what God says is right or wrong. You can't substitute more money, better hours, more benefits, better program, better package. You can't substitute all that the world has to offer to the Christian than to be within the will of God. And if it means you've got to give it all up, to maintain that conviction, God says, hey, I'm not saying I'm always going to replace it with worldly things that are better, but I'm going to give you a peace, and I'm going to give you a comfort that you don't have over here. See, and that's our confusion as we enter into this whole thing about integrity. Somewhere along the line, we've bought into this package that says, if you stand firm on your convictions, God has to honor that in the way you think he has to honor it. And that's not what God has to say. He says, you stand firm on your convictions and I'll exalt you and I'll honor you, but it's going to be in a way that I deem is right. So with that in mind, let's look at an illustration that he gives us, not looking at it how we'd like the story to turn out, or like we'd like to rewrite the ending of it, but how God says that it actually is and that it actually happened and has it actually turned out and see what he has to say about integrity. As we look at the principle this morning, what do you do when your back is to the wall, you can't get creative, or your creativity was shot down quick, I'm sorry, I appreciate it, but you're doing it my way, or no way. 
What do you do when your convictions are put on that uh, cutting edge that says, there's no other way but this way? Do you compromise or do you maintain your commitment? That's what we look at. Turn with me for a moment to Daniel chapter 3. As we look at the principle of courage over cowardice. Daniel chapter 3, it's an exciting chapter. Just to give you a little background of it, the three men who are going to be the focal point of this particular chapter are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, according to chapter 1, we've already been introduced to, to them as friends of Daniel. They were, um, as we put it in our day and age, um, they were part of Daniel's accountability group. They were the ones that were not forsaking the assembling of themselves together, but they were encouraging one another, and all the more as they see the day of the Lord coming near, drawing near, and also as they saw the day where their convictions would continually be put to the challenge. They were the accountability group. They were the discipleship group of his day. They were the men that Daniel could turn to to be encouraged to stand fast in the Word of God. The question as we get into all this is, do you have an accountability group? Do you have men or women who, when your convictions are going to be put under trial, when they're going to be put under fire, when you're tested for what you say you believe, do you have men and women around you who can encourage you and say, you know what, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but one thing that we know is God is faithful. you got to do what's right and let the chips fall where they may, but God will always uphold you. We need more men and women who will encourage us to become more like Christ in our lives and to spend more time associating with people who we would like to become. I've got a friend who's a, uh, he's a professional tennis player. And one of the things that he told me was, he said, you know how I got to be as good as I am? He said, I always chose opponents who were better than me. And any great athlete will tell you the same thing because you, you play to the level of your competition. And what he was trying to get across was that we need to stretch ourselves to, to play against people that are always better than us, who are living a life that is more like we want to become, rather than associate with people that we can beat all the time, or that, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, that we're better than, or we have uh, more qu um, qualities than they do. Uh, there's no other way that I could put this other than saying this. Do you have men and women of your life who are, are more Christ-like than you, that you would like to emulate, that you would like to follow in their life, that you can look at and say, you know what, I want to become more like him or more like her. That's what we need to surround ourselves with. Our problem is we get this mentality, I always want to win. So I'm going to surround myself. If you want to look good, like, and when I grew up in Pittsburgh, the, the, the joke was, if you want to look good, hang around ugly people. And uh, so, you know, you pick out like a group, you know, you say like, uh, there's one there, there's one there. So you hang around all these people, and then when you go out somewhere, you always got the best pick of whatever it was you were going to pick. Um, <laughs> but the question is, who are we surrounding ourselves with? You know? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you accountable to? Do you got people in your life that know more than you about the Word of God and can encourage you in your growth? Or are you like, you, you know more than everybody that you know? If so, that's good. You need to minister to people like that because they can look to you and they can emulate you and they can walk after you. But you better be finding somebody who knows more than you do that can encourage you to become more like them. See, that's the group that Daniel and, and uh, we're going to be looking at. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's this accountability group. 
they are encouraging one another to stand firm in the word of God against all the trials and the fire and the tribulation that comes in our life and every one of us go through it and our biggest problem is we don't have somebody standing in our corner saying go after it go get it you're doing the right thing we got other Christian friends who say well are you really sure that's what the Bible teaches I, I don't have a problem with that why do you have a problem with that I don't understand what the problem is you can kind of do it on the outside and not really mean it on the inside, you know. God knows your heart. He don't care what your actions are. So, you know, so we surround ourselves with people like that so we can continue to be any way we want to be. And it's so wrong, according to what the Word of God has to say. So here's a bunch of guys. They're all together. And uh, you know what? They're the accountability group that Paul writes about that says of the church of Berea. You know what? They're more, no more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they examine and search the scripture daily to see if the things that we're saying are so. They got their mind on the word of God and that's how they encourage each other to live. Not on their opinions, not on what they think. Yes, you may think any way you want as long as it lines up with the word of God. That's the counsel we need to be given to one another. Daniel chapter 3. Let's look at six truths about integrity according to this passage. They demonstrate integrity in their life and they demonstrate courage in the word of God over cowardice to back down when, the, when the, the heat is on. Starting with chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to the assembly to assemble the satraps, the perfects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces came to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the perfects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before that image that he had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. And at that moment that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at the time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The scene is pretty clear. Nebuchadnezzar has established an image that's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura so that all of Babylon can see it. It was a nine-story uh, office building for the most part and every, everyone can see it from any location that they were at. And so what they did was they said, okay, listen, um, have you ever had a situation in your business where the, um, the, uh, the president or the vice president said, look, we're having a little dinner party and uh, I'd like to have all the management come on over to my place, uh, be there about 7 o'clock, attendance is optional, but if you don't show up, don't worry about coming in on Monday. So you, I'm sure you'd like to be there. So they have this big, uh, they're having a big management meeting. So they take all the leadership. And I think it's important that we notice that God reminds us of this over and over again, who's all present for this meeting. Because all the leaders are, are, are present, according to verse 2, and he repeats himself according to verse 3. And I think the point that he's trying to make is, I want you to put yourself in the position of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for a moment. Everybody in the company that's in any kind of a management position is going to the meeting, to the dinner party. 
Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you're part of this uh, office management team and we'd like you to be there. So what we'd like you to do is we want you all to come to dinner. And at the appropriate time in the midst of this dinner party, they stop everything for a moment, they tinkle a glass and they say, look, now that we've got you all together, what I'd like to do is introduce a couple new policies we're going to have around the office. Policy is going to be this. When you hear the music over the intercom system, at the appropriate time that we designate, which would be when you hear the music, we want you to all bow down and worship the picture of our president. And we're all going to give them to you. I know some of you don't have the pictures, but hey, we just so happen to have some posters here. And as you're leaving tonight, we'd like you to grab a copy and hang it in your office when you get there on Monday. And then as we hear the sound over the intercom system when the music plays, we would like you all to bow down and worship the picture of the president because after all, it's because of him that you're where you're at. The least that you could do. So the announcement is made. The policy is now put in place. How many of you have been in a situation where the policy in your business has changed to the point where you say, uh-oh, I had said that if we ever got to this point, I don't care what it cost me, but I can't be part of this program anymore. Have you ever said those words? I'll go to this point, and if it ever goes past this line, I can't be part of the program anymore. If it ever goes past this line, I can't be part of the program anymore. Well, if it ever goes past this line, I can't be part of the program anymore. Where's your line drawn? Because everybody in here has said that at some point. Where's that line drawn? If it ever goes past this, that's it. See, there's a line drawn here, and it's very clear. And they have now gone beyond that line. So the company policy has changed to the point where we're going to hand out the posters and you're going to worship the president at the sound of the music on the intercom system and we're going to check it out. And by the way, if, I mean, you can go along with the change in the office policy. It's optional, but if you don't, you're fired. Or literally, literally in this case, if you don't, you'll be put in the fire. <laughs> See, and we think we got it rough. Or it's like, oh yeah, if I don't do it, I'm fired. Or if I don't do it, I'll become a ball of fire. Now, who do you think has it easier? Who do you think has it easier? Come on, who do you think has it easier? Would you rather be a ball of fire, or would you rather just be fired? Huh? Okay. Well, see, this is what we need to understand. Put yourself in their position. Because our position is, Fortunately enough, we will not become a ball of fire. But we may be fired. If we don't conform. That's the choice. So their integrity is now put under indictment. Change of policy, you're going to do this. If you don't do it, you're fired. That's pretty simple. Right? Right. Okay, here we go. Look at the second thing, verse 8. There's no longer what-if scenario any, anymore, folks. You have got to the point where your what-ifs have now become a reality. It's not what if we get to this point, what if they reach this line, they've reached it, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to handle it? You're going to get creative, it's not going to work. What are you going to do? Their integrity is challenged. Look at verse 8. It says, for this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. 
These are those little kissy people that walk around your office, you know what I mean? It reminds me of, I hate people like that. Little kissy face people, you know, always waiting for you to do something wrong so they can run and tell on you and stuff. Well, that's what, just picture them. You, know, you got a couple in those office, your office? Here's, the, here's their verses, 8 through 12. Just watch this. So they said, O king, live forever, you awesome stud, you. <laughs> You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the salt, you're starting to get the, the point here, aren't we, about this orchestra? The psaltery and the bagpipe and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. And you also said, O king, who is so wise in all your ways and every one of your edicts makes so much sense to us, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Well, we just noticed that there's certain Jews who you've appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I like this. I had a um, uh, pastor in uh, Dallas, you probably heard him, uh, Dr. Tony Evans, black pastor, good guy, great guy. He was doing a... a um, uh, seminar one time with uh, a lot of professional athletes, and he said, you know, keep getting questions about what's the, the role that blacks played in the Bible. So he said, he ran across this passage, and he said, this is the first time that you see any mention of a black man in the Bible. He said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, right there. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought that was great. Anyway. Don't tell me to write that one down. Get out of here. <laughs> anyway, it says, so he said, uh, These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image what you've set up. Okay, so you picture the scene here for a minute. Office policy changed. Everybody's conforming except those certain Jews that you've appointed over the province of Babylon. It's like, and it says certain Chaldeans and those Jews. It was like there were certain men who were watching everything that they did, just waiting for the moment when they can run to the boss and say, we finally caught them. And if you remember what you said, if they didn't obey, they're going to be thrown in the fire, fire. And guess what? I'm sure that you're going to have to stick with that, aren't you, king? But they said it in a nice way. Because after all, all of the company's waiting now to see how you're going to handle this. That reminds me of the pride that happened with Herod when the dancing gal said, give me the head of John the Baptist. And he said, oh, gee whiz. It's kind of like anything but that. But you just said it in front of all these people, and that's what I'd like. So I guess you're like stuck, aren't you? So the boss is on the spot. Have you ever seen your boss on the spot? It's like he came up with this great policy. He hasn't thought anything through. And that's why he's the boss. <laughs> he, hasn't thought, he hasn't thought it through. He hasn't talked to anybody else. And he comes up with this great new company policy. He says, this is the way it's going to be. And if you don't like it, you're fired. Well, guess what? Some people don't like it. And so the people, the little kissy people, were walking around waiting for these Jews to do something wrong so they can run and tell on them. Now they ran and told on them. And now the question is, what are you going to do about it? That is the tension that is now going on in the office. 
The king has a problem, the boss has a problem, because these gentlemen, if you remember, were ten times wiser than all the rest of the leaders that he had in his management team. He's got a major problem. Their integrity is challenged, and now it's also under trial. Look at verse 13. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my God, gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I want to throw out something to you that, as I was reading through this, I thought it was fascinating. See, a lot, of, a lot of times we get real confident about who we are and about what our abilities are. And so as we approach the king in this particular area, as we approach the boss, we begin to realize, do you know how valuable I am? I'm ten times wiser than anybody else on your management staff. I've got more to offer this company than anybody else that's here. I've made more profits for this business than all those other bozos put together added up. They can't even come close to what my contribution is. And so what happens is we become very confident and very arrogant in our abilities, and so our confidence then becomes our confidence in ourselves. So as we are approaching the boss, we have this all in mind. He can't fire me. He can't do anything to me because it's going to hurt him too badly. And he's not that stupid. So. I can hold my convictions, I can maintain my convictions, because I get what I want when I want it, and there's no downside risk to me at all. It's like the arrogant athlete who says, you can't trade me because of who I am. And my confidence then becomes the confidence in my abilities, the confidence in my position, the confidence, confidence that I have in, in, uh, in what I can contribute and so there's no way in the world you're going to trade me. There's no way in the world you're going to fire me. There's no way in the world you can do anything to me so I can maintain my convictions. All right? Right? You ever feel that way? Guess what? Guess what they're going to find out. Um, you forgot one option. I can't fire you. In fact, I can make you fire. You can't rely on your confidence. I want you to notice what they relied on. Look at verse 17. He said, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now see, if we wrote the script, we'd stop at verse 17. 
because that's what we like to believe. So our confidence in ourselves, we, I mean, picture this for a while. I stand before my boss and I say, look, you know what? You can't fire me because you need me too much. And I don't care what policies you come up with. I don't care what new procedures are going on in the office. I don't care what paperwork you need turned in. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do because you need me too much. And you know what he does? He looks at me because, you know why? Because all of you are looking at him to see what he's going to do and who's going to win this confrontation. Who's going to win? Am I going to win? If I win, he loses drastically. And guess what? Everybody else starts to challenge him. Or everyone else starts to line up with me. So he's on the spot. So guess what his only choice is? Clean out your desk. Hand in your keys. Turn in your car. That's the way it's going to be. And you know what happens to us? Us arrogant Christians whose confidence is in ourselves and in our abilities, we're shattered. How could God do this to me? How could he allow me to go through this? I can't believe it. That's not the story that I read. But you know what? It says they trusted God. He says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. See, he will do it if he chooses to do it. And if he doesn't do it, there's a second part. Since even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Their faith and trust, their integrity, their non-wavering in a hostile environment was based upon their trust in God and not in themselves. Their confidence was in who God is and in the promises of God and not in what they think God should have done, not what they think God should have said, but in what God actually has said in his word, and that is that I will not fail you, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, I will always uphold you, but it's not under your terms and under your conditions, it's what I have said in my word. So our problem is, you're too confident in yourself, and when you get fired, you're devastated, and God let you down again, didn't he? Boy, God just can't be trusted anymore. Because we read into the Word of God, like my son read into the wind generators down in Palm Springs, this is the way I think it's happening, isn't that the way it is? No, it's not. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, men of integrity, look at God for who God is and say, Hey, God, it doesn't matter what happens to us, we will always serve you. Just like Job said the same thing, Hey, you know what? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's His to do with what he, what he wants, as He wants, and that's the way it is. And if it means that you lose your job for standing firm on the Word of God, God will not fail you. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. But guess what? He doesn't say you're going to get a better job because of it. He doesn't say you're going to make more money because of it. He doesn't say He's going to put you in a better position because of it immediately. What He's saying is, you humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you when? At the proper time. See, in God's time is always the proper time. That's the whole problem with this thing with integrity, isn't it? See, your convictions are put under fire every day, and you put too much confidence in yourself, and when we start to reap the consequences, we say, gee whiz, man, this stuff isn't right. This isn't the way it should be. See, after all, it's important, I mean, I, can, I mean, just see this thing for a second, it's important that we maintain a good relationship with Nebuchadnezzar because he's the one that's put us in this position to begin with. How many of you have got to the point where you rationalize and said, you know what, God has elevated me to this position of leadership 
He has brought me from way over here to way over here, and now I'm up here, and I cannot believe that he wants to let this thing slip away from me. I'm here now. He brought me here. He put me here. He put me here for a reason, and I can't blow it. I can't, I can't give all this up, even though he brought me to this point, because God wants me there for a reason. So all of a sudden, we're in a leadership position that God's exalted us to, and we start to compromise everything that we ever held as convictions. Because no longer are we placing our confidence or trust in God who has brought us there, but we begin to place our confidence and trust in the position that we're now in and all the abilities and the little fringes that go along with it. So it's not, not God anymore, it's us. And so we say, God doesn't want to remove me from this position. Job said, hey, he gave it to me. He wants to take it away. He takes it away. And if it means he's going to take it away and I'm going to lose it for holding fast to the word of God, I'm going to continue to trust him because it was trusting him that got me there to begin with. If I'm God from here, I'm going to keep trusting him and he's going to take me somewhere else and I don't care where it is because the peace and confidence that I have is being by him in every situation in my life. That's what makes me feel good. See, and that's what they did. They didn't say, man, you know what? God brought us here for a reason. I think we just need to keep compromising until we figure out what he wants us to do. Folks, the very, it's very simple. You know why you're where you're at? So you can glorify God in obedience to, to his word and his commandments. So you can stand firm on the word. It's so funny. We all get confused. wonder why God put me in the position I'm in. You know why he did? So you can exalt him through obedience. That's it. So you can glorify him. So you can proclaim his name through your life and through your lips. That simplifies everything in this book. God wants to use you to glorify himself. That's it. That's it. In a nutshell. Are you bringing glory to God in the position you're in? Or are you compromising because you think he brought you there for some other great purpose? God still demands obedience rather than sacrifice. That's the way it is. Okay, well, what do they do? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he's all excited. He gets a little uptight because everybody in the office is watching this confrontation and, um, boy, it's quiet and it gets nasty. And you can just see it. What I like about it is, you know what the guy said? You know what, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even, we really need to even answer you on this. You already know us. You already know we can't worship this, this image that you set up. You already know we worship our God, our true, the true and living God. You already know that about us. There's nothing we can say that's going to make any difference at this particular point. You've reached the line where we can't even discuss it anymore. This is a non-negotiable area. There's no room here for any negotiation. So Nebuchadnezzar in verse 19 was filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered. Do you ever see that at your office? Do you ever see the boss gets like ticked off? It's like, you know, it's like the, the nostril. In fact, that's anger in, in Hebrew. It had to do with the flaring of the nostrils, you know. So if you just picture this big snout, man, just kind of flapping, opening up. <laughs> Whatever it takes for you to understand what's going on here. Oh, I don't like nostrils. I'm calling them this week. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It says, yeah, you know, you ever see people, oh, that's amazing, man. I, we were driving, I mean, it's my son goes, Dad, why does everyone wait till they get in the car to pick their nose? <laughs> he said, you see, that's so great. These kids are great. I said, well, it's because, uh, for some reason, they think because they're surrounded by glass, no one sees them. <laughs> anyway. So I'm like, oh, you'd be going, I didn't learn nothing else, but I ain't picking my nose in the car. <laughs> hey, hey, there are windows here. Oh, we got windshield, windows on the side. 
Finna do it. Get him timid. Um, so anyway, Nebuchadnezzar, he's all fired up. This guy is uptight. His facial expression's altered. Man, he's changed. He is like, he's excited. So it says that he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. It was like, it's like, I'm not only going to fire you once, I'm going to fire you seven times. You're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. You only fired me one time. That's all right, I'm going to fire you seven times. So that's what he did. He fired him up. He fires it up seven times. And he says he commanded certain valiant warriors, and you'll see why in a minute, uh, who were in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. I like these valiant warriors. We're going to read about them here in a second. It says that then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace has, has been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those valiant warriors who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. I just want you to know something, folks. You stand firm to the word of God, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be put under fire. It's going to happen to you. And so don't think anything else, because when it does happen to you, you're not all surprised running around saying, gee, no one told me if I stood up for my faith I'd have to go through stuff like this. No one told you because no one wants to tell you stuff like that because they don't want to make you feel good about yourself. See, the Word of God isn't here to make us feel good about ourselves. The Word of God is here to reveal to us what we're really like in light of what God wants us to become. See, don't worry about feeling good about yourself. Worry about doing right before the eyes of the Lord. That's a person of integrity. So as you can see here, it says, hey, you know what? Go through this chapter sometime. Just circle the word fire, 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 because it's in here a lot. First Peter chapter 1 says you're going to be put under fire. You're going to go through fire because it's the only way that you're purified. It's the only way you're purged. It's the only way all the impurities are taken out of uh, precious metal. See, that's the way the dross floats to the top through fire. And then it's skimmed off and what you have left is precious in the sight of God. See, we've got to go through the condemnation before we're ever commended for our integrity. See, and this chapter has to do with fire. 